welcome to On The Pulse, where we take a look at the news every week. Or, in this case, look at last year. So, for our first episode, we're going to take a retrospective on 2018, and then look forward to the future and what it may bring and why we care. Yeah, that's right, Hayden. Um, and we asked some of the uh, fellow students here at LSE what they think was the word that describes 2018 best. And uh, this was their response. Confusing. Bad. Roller coaster. Enlightening. Nazis. Patient. Brexit. Trippier. Miserable. Hazy. Indistinct. Full of surprises. Frustrating. Skint. Long. Yeah, long. Um, I think that's pretty accurate. It's a pretty long year. And interestingly, it seems to be a pretty long year of negative things, according to most of these people. I mean, sort of frustrating, bad, confusing. It was nice. There were some sort of silver linings in uh, the sort of cultural moments of Trippier's goal in the World Cup, according to one of them. Yeah, and I, I kind of relate to both long and roller coaster, although they might be contradictory, because I felt like if so many things happen in one year, you feel like, oh God, it's never going to end. And also, wow, yet another political scandal. This yeah. is crazy. You know, so that's that was very weird, but I, I did feel that way in 2018. Yeah, I mean, if it's such a roller coaster, it can't all be bad. It can't all be frustrating and confusing. Right. So, so what would you say was a sort of positive that came out of this year? Well, I think what I tried to look at in a very positive light was this, I don't know if we should call it a rebirth. Um, I don't think that's quite accurate, but like this surge of some progressive movements. In Spain, yeah. the Conservative um, Party was ousted for the first time in a very long time. They now have a socialist government, which is not perfect, far from it, but at least it's something. In the US, we have Ocasio-Cortez, we have all these progressive women, young women, who entered uh, positions of power, which is, you know, encouraging for, for our generation. So that, I think, that would be my one silver lining for this political drama that was 2018. But, so all these people chose one word for 2018, and I, I wonder, what would be your word for 2018? Yeah, I mean, uh, sort of, despite, or perhaps even because of its sort of intellectual laziness, I ended up looking at the OED's word of the year, um, and they had it as toxic, which I thought was quite interesting. Sort of, at first glance, it's obviously a pretty negative connotations. Um, but what seems important is the way that it's used, sort of toxic masculinity, workplaces, mm -hmm. sort of practices and culture, are all things where people are willing to call it out. So yeah. I think perhaps 2018 seems sort of without putting in a necessary narrative on it. There's a, a lot of negative things have happened, but sort of as you were saying with the sort of Democrats and with the Me Too movement and things like that, this seemed to be a year where people were more willing than ever to call it out and work to stop those sort of things. Yeah, I think that was definitely true of, of my country, of the Netherlands, um, in 2018. And, and what I find most interesting there is that um, I think most people know by now about our Black Pete debate, which is a blackface figure that is used around Christmas time in our own Christmas-like celebrations. Um, and what is interesting there and much commented on in Dutch media is the way that the American debate and American terminology influences the Dutch debate. So up until maybe five years ago, no one would talk about toxic mas masculinity, for instance, or privilege. Privilege was not actually a word that we would use in Dutch. Mm. I don't seem to remember anyone using this before a couple of years ago. So the, the climate of the debate has really changed. Um, and for me, my most interesting 
um, personal experience in 2018 was definitely moving to London, of course. Uh, I started my master's here at LSE in September. And I thought, wow, if I go to London during Brexit time, I'm going to immerse <laughs> myself in the Brexit atmosphere. Yeah. I'm going to be living history, you know. I have not. I have not engaged because I don't understand it at all. And I feel really bad about this. So now that I'm here with a national from this country, <laughs> um, I can ask you finally, what, what is your take on the, on the climate specifically of the debate surrounding Brexit? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a good question. And uh, although it's assuming that I've engaged uh, in sort of in any meaningful way, um, I guess sort of to pick up the summarizing in one word, I quite like that sort of someone I spoke to used the word patient. Um, I'd probably take a slightly more negative word and say standstill in mm. that just as a year, it seems like sort of so much has happened. But yeah, to, to coin a phrase, nothing has changed. Mm. Um if you look at the end of 2017 and the end of 2018, it seems that, I mean, Article 50 has still been triggered, um, Parliament's still sort of in chaos. We still don't have any meaningful steps towards a deal, although as much as the Prime Minister has attempted to do so, Parliament seems to have um, stepped in the way and sort of ceased that from um, becoming any meaningful steps. I mean, when you look at the devolved administrations, Northern Ireland still doesn't have a government. When you look at the polls, uh, sort of despite Fiona Bruce's protestations, I mean, Labour and the Tories are, are, are generally neck and neck. Um, it seems, I guess, sort of from 2015 with the general election, 2016 with the referendum, 2017 with another general election, then 2018 seems to have been... Um, Nothingness. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Um, and, yeah, sure, there's been some sort of local elections and stuff, but that's that's sort of reiterated the stalemate that both of the parties have found themselves in. And it's a shame because it's, again, this sort of standstill in a legislative agenda. Yeah. Nothing meaningful really has happened. And sort of maybe aside from some extra funding for the NHS, there's been no meaningful steps on um, social care, for example, mm. or sort of energy, environmental regulations. And it seems like the British people are really sort of suffering as a result from this total taking up of bandwidth by the Brexit debate. As if there's nothing else there, almost. Exactly. It's kind of yeah. frustrating. There's, there's one trigger word in what you said to me, which is polls. Because I've been very interested in, in why we always look at polls and we're so fascinated by them. And we feel like they they are something meaningful, even though everyone says polls are just polls. If yeah. everyone says that, why do we still use them? That kind of betrays some love for them somewhere or some need, maybe some necessity of this prediction of forecasting. And I think as we make this episode about the future, this is a question I have. And I know it's maybe not the most political question, but I wonder what you think. Why are we so addicted to predictions about the future? And why do we spend New Year's Eve thinking about 2019 and predicting what will happen and making New Year's Eve re resolutions? I mean, come on, it's, surely it's just another day, you know? Yeah, um, I guess sort of our obsession with polling and prediction is sort of paradoxically very steeped in the present and the now, because um, it sort of gives us a framework by which to work in it. It, it heavily influences uh, how legislatures carry about their um, mm -hmm. legislation. I know that... Um, especially in 2017, that, that very much affected how sort of backbenchers and the government fell in line 
behind Theresa May sort of before and after the election, once the polls had been turned on their head, um, in that when we were predicting sort of super majorities for the government, that, that people really fell into line. And then immediately afterwards, you started to see that sort of framework fray and for people to start rebelling and, and for an entire loss of authority to occur once that was found to be a sort of false prediction. Hmm. So I guess our sort of obsession with the future is is not necessarily in any meaningful sense about what is going to happen, but sort of what is happening now. And I guess you could sort of see that being reflected in New Year's resolutions and stuff, in that a lot of people make them not necessarily always expecting to carry them through, but sort of hoping to correct something that they see wrong with the present and to have a sort of clean break and start mm. again. That's interesting. That's a good theoretical point, but I'm more interested in New Year's Eve resolutions. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you make any New Year's Eve resolutions? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm ashamed to say that I I started a couch to five k, which went really really well for about two weeks, <laughs> um, and then I ran for about three minutes in one go and got really tired, and then and then later on I got sick and then I had to stop mm. so so maybe that might be like a new month's resolution in february might bring that one up again um i'm not sure that's fair play <laughs> i'm not sure okay but, but Flo, what about you go on then i didn't make any new year's resolutions and and i i'm not i'm not a huge fan of predictions either i just even your point about how they help us structure the present i i can i can see how this works but yet in the political realm i feel like it's kind of corrupting our system because yeah. it means that you know if this swings huge groups of parliamentarians as it does in my own country too what about integrity of values and political views i know this is a difficult term in general in democracies because these legislatures are so short so integrity is yeah. not really the one value you vote for but it kind of annoys me i don't i don't like polls i f i think they play into this self-fulfilling prophecy mechanism that politics in general is already suffering from too much in democracies um if you look at trump's crisis as has been said there was not really a crisis and he yeah. managed to make it one so i think this is not good for at least my personal trust in our democratic yeah. system um and also i just don't want to make any new year's resolutions because then everyone asks me for it and then i'll have to confront the fact that i won't stick to them <laughs> so that's just my easy way out <laughs> okay so if predictions are so sort of bad and meaningless um what's the worst prediction that you've ever made oh man you know i i say this i don't like making predictions but of course i do i'm only human i the, the first thing that comes to mind is world cup last year I put some money on the fact that Argentina would win this World Cup. I was very confident in Lionel Messi. I thought he deserved it. For some reason, I thought there was some kind of dessert relationship going on with having a great career as the best soccer player in the world, football player, sorry, in the world, and winning the World Cup. I should have known this is not the uh, case. That, did, that didn't go, quite go so well, did it? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> what about you, though? I'm sure it's worse. Yours is worse. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've made some pretty bad predictions. None of them to do with football, fortunately. Um, I'd say, sort of back when I was a, um, an optimistic or perhaps sort of naive, hopeful 16-year-old, I, I, um, 
I was very, very confident that Ed Miliband would, would sweep to a stunning victory in the 2015 election with his, his sort of Ed Stone and his, that he was tough on us and, and all of that would sort of usher in a new, a new progressive paradise, which unfortunately didn't happen. And then he lost a lot of seats and then he resigned the day afterwards. And a lot of people came into my sick form um, gloating and, and sort of th throwing uh, blue balloons at me, which they somehow managed to find uh, in one of the school school lockers. Um, so that that was that was a pretty humiliating and, and swiftly proved wrong prediction. Um, so I've been sort of once bitten, twice shy in that respect, and I, I don't think I've made any predictions as radical as that since. And I've, although to be fair, the political pundits did follow me in in, in some respects, but perhaps slightly less. Um, fervently and optimistically. No one could have predicted the Edstone, I think. That was, <laughs> that was unexpected. No one should have predicted that, or no one should have done it, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, and on that note, put me out of my misery. Please introduce our guest, who knows better than to make predictions. Yes, we talked to Professor Jonathan White of LSE's European Institute, who has just started teaching a course, which I'm actually enrolled in, called The Future, Political Responses to a Challenge. Um, and we asked him why we care about the future so much and also what this course is about. So I think the, the things that I teach at LSE are often looking at concepts or practices that are somehow in doubt, in question, in crisis. I've done another course called Democracy, Ideology and the State, and that was very much along these lines, thinking about whether the diagnoses of end of democracy, end of ideology, death of the state and so on, have any purchase, especially after the financial crisis, but also more generally in the 21st century. So there was a course where I was interested in uh, looking at exactly those aspects of political modernity that I think a lot of people, especially in the post-Cold War period, have wanted to say are either obsolete or at least in some fundamental way in question and then I guess at some point it occurred to me that uh, well, I got interested in time and politics generally um, and had been considering doing a course on as broad a theme as that but then it seemed to me that one could do a, a similar take by asking whether the concept of the future is not itself in question in the same way that some of these other concepts that I was looking at in the other course is and I think it's fair to say that there is a kind of anxiety in a lot of contemporary societies about not just what the future holds but whether we are coming at the future in a different way from in the past whether the future is less a source of possibility a promise of hope and more either something potentially dystopian or simply just more of the same i think um and there are good reasons for this, but I think when people uh, do thematize the future uh, in politics today, it's often by extrapolating from the past and assuming that we can uh, forecast because pretty much the future will be an extension, continuity with the past. And of course that can be reassuring, that can be a, a positive thing. We can say, well, we can project into the future by thinking about um, economic cycles or um, known challenges to do with climate change and how they can be expected to play out in certain timescales. 
and we can aim for a kind of uh, a science of prediction, of forecasting, to aim to control the future in, in a certain way. At the same time, I think that's also the, the source of a lot of these anxieties about the future that I, I mentioned before, that um, once you start to see the future in those terms as kind of uh, more of the same, it becomes more knowable, graspable, so you've kind of solved one problem, the indeterminacy of the future. But at the same time, there's a loss of uh, perhaps feelings of agency, freedom of the capacity to shape the future that comes with that way of thinking. So I wanted to do a course which, on the one hand, would uh, take in some of these anxieties about a, a loss of hope, a loss of positive orientation to the future, but also that would look at what are the, the pluses and minuses that come with this sort of uh, technocratic attitude towards the future, where we think of it as something that we can perhaps predict, but we lose some freedom along the way as we, as we think of it in those terms. And you mentioned you were first interested in the concept of time. This, this sounds very broad. Could you give us a direction of your interest and how this influenced your, your idea to, to add this course to LSE's curriculum? Mm. Uh, I came at uh, an interest in time and politics through an interest in uh, electoral institutions um, and political parties. but. As far as institutions go, um, I think it's interesting to notice that a lot of the modern representative institutions are based on cycles. So when we think of elections, when we think of parliamentary timetables and so on, we think of, of those things that recur, that have a certain measure of uh, predictability associated with them, that give a kind of frame for, for, for politics. And uh, I think in a contemporary world, that's also, again, something that's often... In doubt, we see in contemporary politics interruptions of these cycles, governments that fall early rather than living out their, uh, their whole um, electoral cycle. Uh, we see a lot of emergency decision-making, which is somehow outside the normal rhythms of politics and so on. And you might say that phenomena such as European integration, the European Union, they create a kind of temporal scheme which... Um, is at odds with or interrupts that of the nation-state on its own. So they kind of complexify some of the rhythms of politics. So my interest initially was coming from an interest in contemporary crisis, emergency politics, what does that do to the temporal structures of the modern state? I guess then at some point I stepped back a little bit and thought, well, this, this uh, periodicity of institutions in the modern world is interesting. Um, because many people would want to tell us that this kind of cyclical way of thinking about the world is a very ancient one. Um, a crude distinction, I guess, that's often made is that the ancient Greeks, the Romans, they tended to think of time and political time in terms of cycles, obviously the stars, the lunar movements, there was a kind of natural reference point for ideas of, of time in, in ancient political thought. Um, and then the contrast often made is that whereas the ancients thought in terms of cycles, if there's a way of characterising modernity in terms of time, it's exactly about the movement away from focusing on cycles towards thinking about linear time. So revolutions 
as moments that, as Hannah Arendt would want to tell us, are defined by a rupture with the past. The modern idea of revolution, that is. So classically, revolution, as you can imagine from the connotations of the time, is about going backwards. It's still got those star-like movements associated with it, but Arendt and many others have wanted to say, well, the modern idea of revolution, what you get in the 18th century, is all about a break from the past, the beginning of something fundamentally new, rather than just reversion, restoration to, to something in the past. If this is true, if the modern age is all about uh, linear temporal schemes, ideas of progress, of the future being different from the past, of revolutions understood as rupture rather than as restoration, how is it that so much of our institutional apparatus still seems to be modelled on this idea of cycles, of recurrence? I'm interested in this idea of politics using, as it were, a pre-modern time scheme. Do you think this might explain some of our frustrations with democratic institutions, which are often said to lag behind, for instance, business in terms of efficiency and, and progress and implementing new technologies. Do you think this, because we think of time as something we can, the future is something we can make, but every four years we see different people starting all over again, it almost feels like. I think that's certainly there. So um, clearly some notion of a mismatch between the timescales of electoral politics and the world that representatives are meant to be governing is a persistent theme, I think, of dissatisfaction with politics. In fact, one of the earlier arguments for monarchy, I guess, was that the monarch can take the long view. In other words, the non-elected figure. You see this, I guess, with uh, arguments for technocracy today. You see a kind of uh, revisiting of the same theme. The argument for monarchy, I guess, would be um, precisely because someone is not put in power with some notion of the temporal limitation of office, they're just there as long as they live. They don't have to worry about the timescales of electoral politics. They don't have to prioritise the immediate. They don't have to do what they can show results within a five-year cycle. So I think you could certainly make a link between popular dissatisfactions with politics and these, these temporal uh, questions, which might then be to say that there was a kind of a there's a monarchist sentiment which never goes away, which is still there in the public and uh, possibly a problematic one. But this kind of yearning for a, a mode of politics which escapes the rhythms of representative democracy that can be long-term, that doesn't have to be somehow dragged down by the temporal horizons of the electoral system. You mentioned technocracy as one of these possible more stable, future-looking uh, forms of government. Now, I wonder... Because we see in this Enlightenment period this positivity, optimism about progress in the future, which is facilitated by the idea of it being linear, so you can go forward. Um, but when I look at current contemporary cultural expressions about the future, especially a future that's technocratic and, and um, with a lot of new technologies such as Black Mirror, we see mostly dystopian futures, not that many utopian futures. Where did this idea of dystopia, did this arise together with utopia or was it a response? Because I feel like, and also a second question is, why do we see so many dystopias today and so few utopias? In terms of the sequence, I think we can probably say that utopia comes before dystopia. Utopia understood 
generally as imagining some type of other place that is superior in important ways from the here and now. And that other place could be a faraway island, as it often was in the 17th, 18th century in early utopian thought, or somewhere far away in time, somewhere in the future, as it would then be more in the 18th, 19th century and onwards. I think, yes, this is the the first move. Then the dystopian thought, I think one would often want to uh, see as a fin de siècle phenomenon of the late 19th, early 20th century and accentuated then by a whole series of developments in the 20th century that bring it uh, further further to the fore. Why it's, why it's there? So I think one way to pose this question would be in terms of loosening attachment to the idea of progress. So the role of dystopia could be simply cautionary, it could be fully consistent with an idea of progress if it simply holds up an image of what we want to avoid to keep us on the straight and narrow, to keep us pursuing progress. However, I think the emotional force of a lot of dystopian writing comes exactly from the fear that that's where we might end up, that there is no necessary trajectory to history that allows us to think that we will move in a progressive direction, but that we have to entertain the possibility that we could end up anywhere, that there is no kind of shape to history's movement. So one might say the increasing preoccupation with dystopian ideas is a function of the loosening of commitment to an idea of progress. And that, of course, has has many um, as many origins. So one argument is going to be to do with religion. Uh, some people would want to tell us, there's a famous historian of the idea of progress called Nisbet, and he wants to tell us that essentially this is about the decline of religious thought. In other words, that ideas of progress, although they aren't necessarily tied to religion, have often had an intellectual space cleared for them by religion. And even secularised accounts, Marxism for example, which are all to do with progress, nonetheless have moved in the slipstream, if you like, of religious thought. Do you think, because when we started this we were saying why do we look so much at all these predictions, whether it's weather predictions or polls or trend watchers, all these things, how do you see our obsession with this, because I think on the one hand you could say it's a bit strange since now we know thanks to the dystopian messages that we don't have the power to control the future as much, but maybe that also makes it more explicable that we want to have all these predictions. I, I can't really understand why we like them so much. What, what would be your explanation? Well, I think a good uh, explanation that um, has been put forth by various people recently is to say that predictions are not really about the future. So I'm thinking, for example, of Jens Beckett, an economist who has written quite a lot recently on the place of forecasting in contemporary economic practice. And the basic thought, I guess, is that when people need to coordinate action, whether that's governments, whether it's market agents or whatever, central banks, when they need to somehow coordinate action across multiple different agents, they need to have some kind of common frame 
of reference. Mm. They need to have an agreed understanding of what the facts of the situation are, where we're going, what mm. can be expected to come. And in some ways, forecasting, it's offering, it, it's filling a hole in that respect. It's giving people an agreed account of what could possibly be further down the track that allows us to have a common point of departure for policy making in the present. And I guess the argument would be it doesn't really matter that how accurate these forecasts are then. The, the purpose of this type of agreement on the future is not necessarily to predict, but to assuage the potential disagreement that one could have and that is debilitating. The point of forecasting is not necessary to tell us about the future. It's to find a way of giving a common description of the present for people in the present to allow them to, to act in the present. That's everything for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next week. I've been Hayden. My name is Fleur. This has been On The Pulse, Current Affairs. Harsh perspectives right from the LSE. If you're interested in more of John Tim White's work, uh, find the description of this podcast. His course has the course code EU481. And if you want to tune in to any more podcasts, check us out on pulseradio.live, where you'll find us on the podcast section, joined by plenty of other podcasts soon, and all things well on other podcast providers soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.